this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. Next up is Mo Blathnik, who is the founder of Codeship. I should say co-founder because he founded it with two other pals from Austria, moved to the United States, raised $2.7 million, and then another round of $7 million before he sold the company to CloudBees, and a ton of good insight in this interview. He talks about raising money, in particular, how to avoid too much dilution and how to vet potential buyers. He talks a lot about the difference between an investment round, raising money, as well as an acquisition, and the difference between the kind of mentality of an acquirer and an investor, which I thought was really neat. Um, I love the way he talks about having a problem to solve, starting his company with the, the view of really solving a specific customer problem, and I think that gave him a lot of, still galvanizes them as a company today. Um, he talks about misalignment with investors and how to vet your potential investors for misalignment. One of the things I really valued, you know, valued from this conversation was his whole idea around thinking of the sale of his company like the sale of his product and going through some of the, the way they built a short list and, and whittled it down from there. So, so lots of interesting insight. I'll let Mo tell you the rest of the story. Mo Blethnik, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, welcome. Thank you. Well, let's, let's get right into this company, Code Ship. Cool name, by the way. What did you guys do? Yeah, so what CodeShip does, and I first start with the more technical description for basically our, our customers. So what CodeShip does is, CodeShip is a cloud-based continuous integration and delivery platform. And what that basically means in, in a nutshell is, we enable software engineers and software development teams to bring their applications and their products to market faster and make sure that the products really work as they should work. So you can, for example, think of... Um, an e-commerce store, if you're developing an e-commerce store, you really want to make sure that your um, checkout button uh, really works or that the functionality to add a credit card really works. And so with our automated platform, the engineers who are developing that um, can make sure that everything works as it, as it should work. So, I mean, is it about testing? Is it like allow software engineers to test their code before it goes live? Is that what you guys do? Exactly, exactly. So it involves a lot of automated testing. Uh, so basically every change a software engineer makes, we test every single change and we immediately tell that um, software engineer, hey, with the tiny change you make, you broke something um, over there. You didn't even think of that's possible. Oh, but, cool. Um, we, we detect that we detected automatically. So you would sell this software to develop custom development shops? Exactly. So pretty much everybody who is developing software, and, and I think that's um, more and more pretty much every company out there. Right? I mean, there are obviously software companies that produce software, sell products, and then make money. But then there are also 
like for example a bank a bank doesn't necessarily sell a software product but they leverage software uh, for their business and so everybody who employs software engineers can and should use coaches got it and so did did you sell directly to companies that were developing in-house software or were you more direct like were you more focused on the development shops like the exactly. it was directly directly to companies so we have more than 2400 customers um, companies in 80 plus countries and those were all um, companies in in various different industries could be um, in finance could be also in the software industry uh, could be small startups could be larger companies okay that's helpful and then how did you sell the software was it on a SaaS or software as a service model it says exactly so CodeTrip completely runs in the cloud and is available as SaaS uh, so you basically go to our website if you're a smaller customer you go to our website you can create an account start using the product as a free tier and then at some point you need to start paying you put in the credit card that is how the smaller customers uh, for example the startups or if you were a small company you would purchase like that if you're a larger company usually what happens is that either we get in contact with you for our sales team or we 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 get a request from you and then we do a demo or you have questions and then there's um, a more traditional b2b sales uh, process involved got uh, it. yeah got it and so how did you get into this business yeah, so I um, got into that through one of my co-founders. So we were three founders, and, and, and one of us, he was basically having the problem we are now solving all the time. So he was um, he's, he's a highly technical engineer, and he was always responsible for maintaining that testing infrastructure. And so in the past, lots of people used open source products for that or, or um, some commercial products, but there was not really anything for the for the cloud age. Uh, so our, we started more than seven years ago and so the industry was changing rapidly and more and more workloads and applications were moving to the cloud and there was no great testing product for the cloud. And so we thought, all right, that, that, can't, that can't be it. That has to be something. And, and we, we looked around, we talked with friends and we talked with other people and eventually we concluded, well, there is not really anything that's good enough in our opinion for that new ecosystem and that new paradigm. So let's build something, use it ourselves and then make it available for others. And that is exactly what we did. And after we got our first paying customers, we realized, oh shit, that's like, that's like real. Um, it's not that just we thought that there is a need, but there are actually people paying that we don't know that are from a random country on the other side of the world. So let's jump on it full time. And that is when we then decided to also move to, to the US and based in Boston now and really build a business out of it, hire people, raise money and so on. Got it. So you, you guys were in Austria at the time? Exactly. Um, the three founders are from Austria. We also have, a, um, we still have um, several employees in, in Austria um, and we, we started there. So talk about how you structured it with your two other co-founders. I mean, was this a third, a third, a third? Everybody was kind of all equal partners or how did you structure that? Yep. And, and I think what we did well is, so I think Flo, the, one of my co-founders who was the technical guy, he was, he, did a, he made a really smart decision now looking back where he said, okay, I am the technical person, so I need people who are different, who know other skills. It was not, not the developer that thought, okay, all, all that matters is being a great developer and I need more developers to simply develop faster. <laughs> he thought, okay, I need a designer. Um, and so he reached out to Manny, they worked together before, Manny is our third co-founder. And so Manny was 
on board, which is great because mainly developed the whole brand, the code chip, the logo, the initial design, and then over time he started doing more and more marketing. And then he thought, okay, Mo would be the person that, that has the technical background, but then also business background. So that combination actually makes perfect sense as well, because we need somebody who understands technology, but can still do the business part. And so from the beginning, we, I think, had a really good partnership between the three of us with different responsibilities. Everybody had clear goals and, and was owning a certain piece. And that, I think, really helped us to to get the company up and running. Got it. So how did you structure, you mentioned you raised money. What and what, what was the format of the, the, the raise? Was it convertible debt or how did you, how did you raise funds? Yep. So we raised multiple rounds and uh, it started with our first investor was an accelerator program. And the reason why we did that was we decided after we, we acquired our first customers and decided that we will do, do it full time that the U.S. is the better place to scale the business. Um, the U.S. is still uh, the, the country with the most companies in our space. So if you look at companies selling to software engineers and software engineering teams, highly technical products. A lot of those are from the US, a lot of our partners, a lot of default leaders are from the US. So we decided to move to the US and I, for example, I've never been to the US before. And so we we got in contact with an accelerator program that um, then invested a certain amount of money, but also helped us a lot to really move the company over, get a network in the US. We didn't know anybody. Um, I. Like when I moved, I think I, I moved out of my apartment in Vienna and then flew to US the day later. Um, and I'm living there since then. So I think it was it was very very helpful for us to leverage that that network of the accelerator and 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 really get moving in the US. And after that, we we raised a little bit more money from some angel investors, and then eventually our first larger venture capital around that was, I think, around 2.5, 2.7 million. And that was at the beginning of 2014. And then two years later, we raised the 7 million round again uh, from another uh, VC firm um, to scale to scale the business. Talk to us about what you learned through the process. I mean, I think a lot of people are listening to this saying, um, you know, maybe they own 100% of the equity of their business, and maybe it's a it's a situation where they own 100% of a small business, and they're kind of thinking, maybe maybe I want to bring on some investors and own a smaller chunk of a bigger business. What advice would you have for someone starting to think that way? Yeah, I think it really it really depends on your particular situation. So you should really carefully think through why do you need external capital. And what funding sources do you have available? I think there, in our industry, unfortunately, there is, there's this very, I think there's a lot of hype around raising money, and it's great if you raise money, and that means you are successful. I think that's not necessarily the case. I think it comes with a lot of responsibility, some overhead, and and um, what happens is once you take money, it's very likely that you, especially venture capital, that you raise more and more money, um, and so. The thought process we went through is when we looked at our market and where we were and how the market is evolving, so a couple of things were clear for us. Our market is definitely a market that's very large and growing rapidly, and that means it is a market that can attract venture capital because venture capital requires big returns, right? They bet on um, a few companies, one company, two companies out of their funds becoming very successful. So it requires a large market. That was the case for us. and then. 
we also came to the conclusion that it's better if we are the number. So it's very important to be the number one company in the space. It's better to raise money and have a smaller equity, um, a smaller piece of the cake, basically, less equity, um, and investors hoard some equity. It's better if we do that and be the number one company in the space than own 100% and are the number three company. Because the number three company in a SaaS market like ours is usually not that much worth at the end of the day. And uh, what you see in those SaaS markets is that there is a a very big pool around the number one company and the leader in the market and the leader in the market is a lot of attention and then can through that attention attract great talent, customers, build good products, raise money and that is just this flywheel that starts to go off. So we said, okay, we need to be that company uh, and if that uh, is only possible with raising money, then we will raise money. So I think the advice I would give is you should really go through that thought process. Like, why do you need to raise money? It, if you if you only want to raise money because then you have more money and it's great and you can pay yourself more more money and have a, have a higher salary, I think that's obviously not the right motivation, right? I think it, it, it needs to be well thought out. Otherwise, you end up um, a couple of years later in maybe in the same position. You're still not that much bigger, but you own less in your company. How much of Codeship did you own at the time of the sale? Yeah, I can't, I can't say that, but I think if you look at, um, I mean, there, are, there, are, I think public companies that in, are like going public right now, Spotify or also um, um, Dropbox and and others, and I think you can look at those to really get an understanding how how much you own at the end of the day as a founder if you're truly truly successful. So it's not uncommon that. As a as a as a founder CEO, you own maybe ten percent or even less when you go public. If you are doing it for the second time, or you are extraordinary, or very very good, or timing everything lined up, then you maybe own more. And there are those examples of like Google or Facebook or other companies that are still controlled by the founders. But if you look at the majority of the companies and the majority of technology startups that go public, usually investors hold the majority of the equity, and that's simply the case because if you raise round over round over round, your piece of the cake gets smaller and smaller and smaller, but more and more worth because the company gets more worth. And so if you look at coaching, I mean, you can do some back on the envelope math, right? We raised two venture capital rounds. Uh, we are we are free founders, so you can do the math uh, where, where, we would, where we would end up. Um, and that, I think, is another important uh, to consider for you as a founder is, is it really worth it to raise the next round or should we see if there are people interested right now to acquire the company? Because if we raise another round, again, our our piece of the cake gets smaller and then maybe um, if it doesn't work out, we, 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 we simply don't get as much as we first envisioned to get when we started the company. What was the trigger that made you want to sell it outright and not raise another round? Yeah, for us, I think it goes back to why did we start the company? And 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 so we started the company because we wanted to solve the problem um, that we solved low having and that we spent a lot of time looking into. And and once we got customers, it was really all about the customer and solving the problem for the customer. And for us, at some point when we were thinking about okay, how can we how can we scale the business? How can we be successful? How can we be the number one company that I talked about before. Uh, for us, 
at that point, it simply seemed the better option that we become part of a larger company in our space than continuing to raise and raise and raise uh, because we felt that we as this tiny startup with 30 people, it was simply doesn't matter how good we were and that we have lots of customers and them loving us and being great evangelists for our product. Um, we were still this tiny company in this very big market with, uh, with a lot of larger competitors. And so we thought it's better to be part of Cloudbeast because together we are truly the number one company. And so we believe that's better for us, better for the customer and allows us to solve the, pro the problem on a far larger scale. Um, and that goes back to um, when I talked about raising money, right? We didn't want to be number two, number three, number four, or something like that. We wanted to be number one. And once we we realized that it's more likely to be number one as part of some somebody else, um, we, we decided to do that because that's more exciting for us. Mo, if you could go back, and I go, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. So I, I asked this question with full knowledge that it's, it's <laughs> you know, we never know this going in, but if you could go back to the very beginning, and and do it over again. Specifically, I'm thinking about the way you approached the capital structure, raising money, the incubator, the angel investor, and the two venture rounds. What might you do differently if you could do it over again from the beginning? Yeah, that's a that's a very hard question, right? Because and I would the the reason why I think it's hard is there is the how would I do it differently if I go back? And then I don't have the knowledge I have right now, or how would I do it differently if I would start another company now? If I would start another company now, it, it would be way easier, right? Because I, I made so many learnings and I can avoid all the mistakes I made or we made. If I go back and, and, and don't have all that knowledge, if, if I put myself in, the, in, 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 my, in my shoes like five years ago, six years ago, I, I think we, we simply try to go from milestone to milestone um, from like have this little tiny MVP to getting the first customer to raising the first round and then getting to the US and getting our first um, employee and then first large round. We simply try to go from like step to step to step um, and, and make a, and, and create a bigger and bigger company. And I'm pretty sure we, we didn't always make the right decision. But it's so hard for me to see him if I look back now. How could we have done it differently? I'm, I'm more interested. Because... I'm more interested in in the other question, which is with all the knowledge that you have now, how would you do it differently? Or said a different way, for your next company, what will you do differently, specific to raising money and and this you know the capital yeah. structure? Yeah, I think the next time I would probably not go for an accelerator program, right? It's something you do once in your life and then you get the knowledge and then you know how to how to how to do all those things, um, building a company and so on. It's great for first time founders. I can highly recommend it if you find a great program like like we did Techstars. Uh, I think the second time it's not necessary. I think what I would be very focused on and we were lucky with that to a high degree is we were lucky to get really good investors, but I spent I would spend a lot of time on really figuring out how do those people think? What do they want to get out of it? Obviously more money, but like, what's, like how long-term are they thinking? Um, how are they making decisions? How are they interacting with other investors? I think I would put far more thinking on that versus, uh, okay, we need that much money and we could raise from those people and now let's see what terms do we get from people. I think I would focus more on on 
on the people instead of the amount and the terms and try to get the right people with the right knowledge for the industry I would build the next company in. We, we don't have to throw anybody under the bus, but, but when <laughs> you think back to the, the rounds of investors, can you tell me a story about a time where you, you as a founder felt misaligned with the investors that their time frame may have been different or their reasons for investing became clear and, and maybe were not what you thought they were? I think we were very good aligned with our larger investors. So I think there they are, that was that was all good. I think it's normal that you're a little bit disaligned, right? I think in I mean, you as a founder, it depends on why you start a company, but I like my my philosophy is I really want to solve a problem and focus on the customer build a company that's sustainable for the long run. And I think investors are inherently, especially VCs, are inherently focused on, like, it has to be the biggest possible company out there, right? That makes their business model work. They need to see those huge returns um, in order to return money to their investors. And this, that, disalign, that, that, that causes disalignment with people like me who simply want to build a sustainable business that's, that's very big. But um, I think there's a slightly, slightly different approach here um, than a lot of investors would love to see. And so how, how, you can, how you can then feel that is investors are willing to push you to take way bigger risk, obviously, because they think it's worth it to take the risk because that, then they have a shot at building that very big company. Even if the downside is that if, if it goes wrong, then you fail completely. While you as a founder often don't think like that, right? You think of, okay, I want to be very successful and build the most successful company um, that I can possibly build. But then you also have this plan B thinking in your head and, okay, what if this bet doesn't play out well? What if that experiment doesn't work out well? What, the, what is my plan B then? And the plan B still has to be good enough. And that is, I think, not how every every investor thinks because they rather see one company becoming worth a billion and then other companies in the portfolio fail, then having three companies becoming worth 300 million um, together. So I think that is what you have to be careful of. I think we did otherwise, uh, we, got, we got good investors. I mean, there were maybe some, some smaller ones that didn't have a lot of experience with investing and that then can create a little bit of overhead because you have to explain a lot of things to them. So I think getting experienced investors who have done it before who are aligned with you when it comes to how you want to build your company. Uh, I think that that makes everything easier. That's great advice for sure. So you made the decision to sell. Take us to the next step. I mean, did you did you have a buyer in mind? Did you did you build a list of prospects? Like what was the what was the process you went through to sell the company? Yeah, so if you are successful to a certain degree. And then, I mean there are different degrees on successful, right? I mean, um we are we are a startup, but uh, for a startup in our space, we were we were pretty successful. Um, still a long way to go to become a real big um, company, but um, we were successful. And so, if you are successful, what happens is that you, over and over again, you have those conversations where um, companies are coming to you, or you maybe talk with a partner about a deeper partnership, and then that conversation suddenly becomes something more serious. So, I think if you create a lot of value for a big amount of uh, customers are there, then you automatically always have those conversations. And then you also know who are the companies that might make sense. Um, and if you are fully thinking through 
your market and who is active in your market or who could be interested in your market, who is a competitive threat, who would benefit from having what you are doing. I think then you have a good understanding who could be interested and you might even know, okay, they are interested, right? Or you know they have approached in the past, but you said no. So I think in our case, we had a pretty good understanding um, of that. Uh, and there were, if I, if I think of it, I always think of it as like selling your companies like sales. So if you apply like a sales mindset, then you basically have a couple of colder leads and a couple of warmer leads. You have some inbound leads, and then you also do some outbound. And that at the end of the day, gives you a set of leads that you try to sell to. And, and when you are selling your company, that's the product you are selling. Um, it's not a software, it's not a technology, you're selling the whole, the whole company. And that is how we approach it. And that is how we run the process. So we, we talk to the companies that we thought are are interested or where we knew they were interested and then nurture them through a funnel and like move them along and 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 and, and try to figure out how interested are are they is the timing right do they have the budget like again i think it's very similar to sales so if you are a founder with a background in sales i think you can benefit a lot from from applying that that mindset so as you're going through this process are you doing it yourself did you hire an M&A banker to represent you what was that we we hired an M&A firm and there were a couple of i think very good reasons for that and i will do it again um main reason being the process can take quite some time um in length and then also can be very time intensive in a in a in a in a certain time period and and what what was important to us is if we do the process, it could be that we are not satisfied with the results we are seeing, and then we decide to continue building a company, right? Um, that's something that 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 is a totally fair outcome. And so, building the company and focusing on the business was always more important to us. And what allows you as a CEO to focus on the business is if somebody else runs the process with your help. How much did and you end up paying those guys? <laughs> Uh, I wish I could share that, but I, but I, but I can't. But and you can, if you look at how, how those firms are compensated uh, and they make money off um, primarily the transaction, right? So uh, and if, if, if a firm approaches you and they tell you, okay, pay us this big amount up front and then we will sell your company, I think that should be a red flag to you. You want to be aligned, right? It's, it's like sales again. So you pay commission. Uh, you pay a fee if the company uh, gets acquired, which is your goal uh, when you run such a process. And then uh, you are happy to pay a larger fee, the larger the price is. Um, and so you should structure those agreements like that. And I, I can share, I'm happy to share share feedback if, if, if one of you wants to, uh, one of the listeners wants to, to get feedback um, about their process. Uh, but so we, we hired it. We hired that firm, um, and then we. And I can, I'm happy to talk more about the process, but <laughs> probably should let you ask the questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'd love love to know more. So one of the questions that's that's in my mind is is how do you how do you do this without sort of telling the world you're for sale and and having all your employees and your customers start to bail because they they think you're on the auction block. <laughs> that's a that's a very good question. You would. You definitely want to avoid that, right? Because that um, then results in exactly the opposite. Um, and then also, again, I think it's totally fair to run such a process and then conclude that you don't want to sell um, and you just want to test the market and see what would you be worth right now, right? What so that you can evaluate your option. What would you be worth right now 
um, and then you maybe can compare that with um, a fundraising round, and and so then you can then you have options, which is always good uh, as a CEO or founder, and so uh, you should definitely do it in a in a very discreet way if possible, and it depends. We were we were able to do that. I think it depends on the situation you're in, right? It, it could be very unique. I mean, if you have to sell in a very short period of time because I don't know, you had a large customer churned or you're running out of money or there are like big market shifts. Like if you have to, um, in a very short period of time, if you have to sell, I mean, that puts you in a, in a, in a hard position and then it's maybe worth it to reach out to more people right away and then more people know and more buyers know and then the market knows. In our case, we created a very specific list of companies where we thought it would make sense for those um, and we had conversations with some, with some we didn't, some were interested in the past. So, uh, and then we went through that process. Um, and so with having a, a, a short, concrete list, we avoided basically broadcasting the news and we only talked with, with, with um, very specific companies. And then if you hire the right M&A firm, that helps as well, right? If they have existing relationships, the sold companies to certain acquire us, then it's also easier for them to pick up the phone and call those people and they can start a process uh, and there's more trust immediately. And, and so I think that helps as well. Sure. So how many, how many companies were on your short list that the one that you gave to the M&A firm? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, there, there was a long list and then we trimmed it down. Um, and so I think companies where we really thought it would make sense, it's probably probably 10 to 20 companies uh, where we really thought, okay, there a lot of things seem to be aligned and then there's this broader set, right? Um, and it's totally fair at some point to reach out to other companies and get more conversations going because at some point, right, you also want to create a competitive situation and want to make sure that you really get the best possible deal um, and that a certain company is not able to lowball you and so, all of that. So Yeah, so of the 10 to 20, what proportion of those did you get into some active conversations with that they showed some interest that you maybe met with management, that kind of thing? Um, I, whew, that's a good question. I, I don't know numbers top of my head, but I think it's probably half of those uh, where it got a little bit deeper because Again, it's a funnel, right? So there are you you start those conversations, and then with some, it's like okay, the timing doesn't make sense, um, because they are maybe, and you don't even know that at that point of time they are maybe working on another acquisition, or they just kicked off an internal project to build exactly what you were doing, and they have this internal team that's basically competing with you already, um, or they simply, despite you thinking they they might be interested in the space, they aren't, or they were in the past, but now they aren't, or like, there can be a ton of reasons, right? And so you try to filter out those companies very fast because you want to avoid you spend, and that's similar to fundraising. So uh, for those of the listeners who fundraise, I think they, they can learn from that. You try to avoid having conversations with people where nothing comes out of it at the end of the day because that sure. just takes up time. So, so you had to figure five out or 10 that, that were sort of, sort of meaty conversations? Yep, yep. And then, then, I mean, then you just have to work them and then you have to try to keep them running this in, the, in, 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 the, in the same direction um, according to your timeline, which is hard, right? Just because you think um, you want to have the follow-up meeting in that week doesn't mean that they will do it or it could be that one 
company moves faster than the others, but then you also want the others to move faster because ideally you get multiple term sheets at the end of the day and all of that. So there's this, that whole dynamic that's similar to raising from investors, I think. And again, you can learn from that experience if you went through that. I think the big difference is that selling a company and getting acquired means you're getting acquired by another company and that other company is also having a lot of things going on, certain priorities, um, competing priorities, and their sole purpose is not acquiring, right? That's the difference to an investor. If you are raising money, the purpose of that investor is to invest money. If it's a VC, uh, the, the, the purpose of an acquirer, if you try to sell to Google or to like Apple or to Facebook or whatever other company that's maybe in your space, those companies, their main business is not acquiring. They do it to improve their core business. And you have to be aware of, of that. How do you avoid overplaying your hand, meaning pushing acquirers so hard to uh, to honor your timeline that they opt out of the process? I think it comes down to, and, and an M&A firm can help there if you don't have a lot of experience. I think it comes down to your negotiation skills and um, people skills and maybe sales skills, right? I think you have to, you have to read between the lines and you have to get a feeling of, are we asking for too much? Are we pushing them too hard? Are they really interested? Are they not interested? Are they only saying? So I think it, you have to build that skill ideally before <laughs> or you learn very fast. And if you don't have that at all, then I think leverage your leverage an M&A firm if you can, because they, they do nothing else for a living. So they know how to interpret those signals. How many, how, many ter- how many letters of intent or term sheets did you get? Yeah, I can't, I can't say that. I think that, that's a little bit too detailed. Um, and, but again, I think what you should aim for is, and, and that's true for every deal, right? Deals, deals are always better if, if, if they're competitive. You can negotiate harder if you know you can walk away. And, you can, and so being able to walk away could be possible for, for you because you don't have to sell at all, that's great, or you don't have to raise money at all, that's great, or because you can do another deal and sign a different term sheet. So try to make it competitive. So I'm assuming you got multiple term sheets. How how did you evaluate the pros and cons to each? Like, like, was there a big range in terms of valuation? (laughs) Implying a lot of things. um, um, It's hard for me to, to not say too much about like our specific process because I mean I want to honor like NDAs we signed and and companies we talked to that we're still working working with because we are still around right we're just part of a larger company now so I try to be mindful of all the people that were involved in the whole process but I think um, when it comes to comparing different terms what I think you then need additionally to your M&A firm is a really experienced lawyer and I think if you are a startup, small business that's at a certain size, successful to a certain degrees. I mean, you have a lawyer that you worked with because there were other situations where you needed a lawyer. And so in our case, we had a pretty big law firm with um, a very good partner that worked um, there with us. And they have um, helped a lot of companies uh, to sell and, and negotiate those agreements and know what they, are, what they need to look at. And they know how other terms should look like. And so they, they, they have a sense of uh, if you talk with a, if you work with a larger firm that's active in the technology space, they have a sense for 
all right, across all the term sheets we saw in the last 18 months, like those were terms that we saw more often. Um, those were terms that were a little bit uh, not like market standard terms. Uh, so I think that helps. And that, that's why you maybe should consider spending premium dollars on a larger and better firm than working with that one lawyer that doesn't see a lot of deals. What would you expect if you, if you were you know, giving advice to another entrepreneur, similar size company to yours, going through a transaction? What, what do you think they should budget for the legal costs associated with the transaction? Ballpark. Ooh. I mean, it gets, it gets expensive. I mean, you should definitely budget um, a, a six-figure sum uh, because there's, you don't want to... You don't want to start like saving money there, right? Again, you have to understand how the people on the other side uh, of the table think. And if you negotiate the, the cost and what you will pay the lawyer, you need to understand what motivates them. And, and money is obviously a big, big part. Uh, and you don't want to be the least important work on the table and still pay a lot of money. Right. So if if you hire a lawyer, you want to make sure that during that very stressful period for you and that that big event for you, I mean, you're selling a company and your company, you want to make sure that you can call them in the middle of the night on the weekend and they still pick up. Sure. Uh, sure. And so make sure, I think, that you that you don't save the money there, because if you get the right firm and they do the deal right, I think it's worth it anyway. Um, and it also can make the difference from blowing up the deal versus not blowing it up and getting a good deal and a bad deal or a very good deal. So I'm, gl I'm glad you raised earlier non-market terms because I, I think it would be really valuable for listeners to hear what you think are, are maybe kind of non-market terms. Again, we, we don't have to talk specifically about your deal, but again, if you, if you were providing advice to another entrepreneur, what are some of the examples of of terms that were are kind of n not market terms, things that are things that are overreaching on behalf of the acquirers, things that acquirers are asking for that they really they really shouldn't. Yeah, that's well, that's that's a very hard question because I'm not a lawyer, um, and then there are so many, <laughs> um, and it's so specific to I think the situation you're in. But I think, um, and it touches every aspect of the deal as well. I mean, there could be non-market terms for. Um, how a payout package gets structured or how um, different investors get treated or how founders get treated or different classes of stock get treated or how, like, what happens with IP and what happens if there is a claim and an issue. So there are so many that I think ideally you really involve a good lawyer and that's an area where i mean i i got a lot of help from more experienced founders and from people who sold one company two companies uh and they, their advice was tremendously helpful but when it comes to that topic i think that's really an area where where an, a lawyer is the expert and not another founder what was the best advice that you received from another founder that is a good question um, because I, I received a lot of advice. I think what I was looking for and I probably found the best advice there is how do, 
how to navigate the the different personalities, all the stake and shareholders that are that are involved. Because I think if if you think of everybody who is who will be involved in selling your company, there is the acquirer, and then the acquirer is a company, right? So there are different people, and there's maybe a champion or two champions that really want you, and then some neutral people and some people don't want you. Um, then there are the lawyers, and there's, if you have an M&A firm, the M&A firm, and then your lawyer, and then you have investors, and maybe they have a lawyer, and then you have different investors that have very different interests. So there are a lot of different people involved with different motivations, and they all also either pay money or receive money. <laughs> and so it's a very complex puzzle to solve. And I relied on a lot of advice when it comes to getting the deal done and all of that on the M&A firm or then on our board or some investors. But it, but there are some questions where none of them is, is, is really the right person to ask because they all are biased that have a stake <laughs> um, in that whole process. And so I think Whenever it comes to how do we how how do you navigate that minefield? How do we navigate that and orchestrate and manage in the background? Uh, I think that that is an area where another founder, another CEO who has gone through the process can help you a lot. And then I think the second area that may be interesting for you, depending on if you stay on with the company, like we are doing, is. Um, how to make sure that you are in the right position afterward to really achieve the things you want to achieve and have an interesting job and and um, can have an impact and all the things that matter to you and are set up for success and how to how to achieve all of that while still negotiating a, a good a good deal because I think that's the tricky part right it's different if you if you won't be part of the acquirer then you can negotiate differently because there is like it's over afterward. But if you then work with those people, I mean, you, you really want to treat them with, ex, like even if you treat everybody with respect and you want to treat them with even more respect and uh, be mindful of that because you it's the start of the relationship, right? And I now work for the, the CEO of the acquirer. And so I always had that in mind when we, when we spoke about the whole deal. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough though, right, Mo? Like in the sense that, um, you're trying to get the best price for your company. In this case, seven years of work, you're representing your investors, you're trying exactly. to get the highest possible price. At the same time, you know, as soon as the, the deal gets done, you're negotiating with who will eventually become your boss. So it's yep. very tricky. <laughs> yep, and that is where, again, it helps, going back to one of my comments earlier, uh, or, or the discussion we had um, before is, uh, you really want to make sure that you talk to the right companies, and that it's not just the right companies in terms of your product fits for them or they're in your market or interested in your market and they have resources and all of that, but also how do they think, what's their culture, what do they value? Are they, are they very, very transparent, honest, like, and all of that? Or are they known for, uh, they, are, they are trying to screw people and try to get them as cheap as possible? Like, I mean, companies have a certain reputation in the market and you can figure it out by talking to other people, I mean, you can look up what companies they've acquired. You could you could just call those people and try to get some information. Uh, because if you talk to the right companies, and in our case, if you look at Cloudbiz, um, who acquired us, I mean, I think why the whole process works out so well is and why I 
we have a very good working relationship now is because we were simply aligned on how we want to resolve all the problems. And it was just very focused on, look, there, there are some business terms you have to work through um, and we will do that and we will both look out for our own interest, but, and that's, that's okay, but we will treat each other with respect and, 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 and all of that, that we both understand that there is this hopefully long period afterward where we work together. And I think that was very clear. And, and, and even though we negotiated, we, we already felt being part of their team and, and being one team. And so it was, I think, a very positive, always very solution-focused discussion. And that makes it easier. But you can only have such a, I think, you can only have that if you talk with the right companies. If you talk with a company that's known for screwing um, the companies they acquire, then I think you should be very, very careful and ideally not talk to that to that company. How did you think about for your own, you know, your own self personally, um, the decision to stay on with Cloudbees? I mean, for a lot of the entrepreneurs that that I speak to for this show. Um, you know, the last thing they want to do is, is go work for somebody. Uh, <laughs> and so how did, how did you get your head around the idea of, of, of working for the acquirer? Yeah, that, that's funny. I think it depends on how you're wired and in your, in your brain and why you start a company and what, what, like, what's your whole motivation. I never, I never started coaching because I didn't want to work for somebody or don't want to have a boss. I'm more than happy to work for somebody. And the truth is, if you raise money and then have a board, um, or even if you don't raise money and have a board, uh, at the end of the day, you as a CEO, you have a boss, right? <laughs> Unless you own 100% of the company, uh, you, you do have a boss. And that's nothing bad. That's my opinion. I mean, your your boss can give you a lot of valuable feedback, can help you to run in the right direction, and together you can achieve more. And that is maybe why it's so easy for me to now work for somebody. I'm super excited about that because the last five, six, seven years, um, I mean, I had our investors and board and all of that, but I didn't have the close relationship with like, I, I, I do my one-on-one -on -one every week and I have somebody who provides me very good feedback and pushes me in the right direction and get, and knows me better and better and therefore can like help me to grow faster. And, and that is what I'm excited about, but that's me. I know that there are other people who just want to um, get a paycheck and, and, and make money and, and then do the next thing. So I think it, it, it's different. Um, so that, 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 that's my comment about working for somebody. I think apart from that, it was always clearer for us and for me. I mean, I like courtship doesn't end here. It's just the next chapter on our journey. And that was very, very important to us. And I think that influenced how we run the process with whom we talked, with whom we eventually ended up working with and that's why we are now part of Cloudbees because it is, it, it continues. It's just the next chapter and we are now building, building Cloudbees together and Cloudbees is a very important and valuable part of it. And that then I think impacts how you treat everybody who's involved, how you make sure that people stay on board, motivated um, and, and, and all of that. And so I think that's just our mindset. And that maybe comes from being focused on solving the problem, helping the customer and not 
just being focused on making making money. That said, you did make some money, and I'd love to know: Did you buy yourself anything when the check cleared? Did you, you know, go out and buy a fancy car? Like, give me the let, let us live vicariously through you. What did you go buy? What was the trophy? I think, I think it's uh, it's so funny. I think there's this, um, and, and maybe I'm just I'm just not like that, and I'm maybe the the big exception. Uh, I mean, I. I think the most exciting thing I did after we were acquired is I went on vacation for a week. <laughs> um, that's maybe super lame. Um, <laughs> yeah, a lot. I, I just don't. I just don't think like that, and that's maybe maybe a weakness of of me or or us. I think we also. I think we need to get better with celebrating in general, <laughs> uh, because for us it's always just well. It. I mean. It, that is what happens, and and that is what what you work for to a certain degree, and and that was the same for us when we raised money and we got questions. Okay, what like did you like do anything crazy now because you have all the money, or when we achieved major milestones? We are just, I think, very mellow, or or especially me. I'm pretty sure some people hate that. Rational people where we are like, okay, like that's another bullet point on our checklist, and it's now checked off, and now we have the next chapter, and then. Um, the next chapter is, is hopefully super exciting for um, a couple of years, and then at some point, I'm pretty sure in in, in the future, I will uh, start another company. And maybe I'm I'm different then, but I assume it will it will be the same. It's just <laughs> um, how, maybe how you I... could take a two week vacation next time. Just just thinking, <laughs> just just an idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Listen, I uh, I appreciate you sharing yeah. so much. I know I know that the deal is very fresh, and and obviously there's some things you can't talk about, but I I, I think there's a ton that you have and and, and tremendous value. Uh, Mo, what's the best place for people to? What's the best way for people to say hi? Is there a a way that to to reach you if if people had follow up questions? Yeah, um, I think the best place is definitely Twitter. Um, I, uh, my phone is broken right now, but I still monitor Twitter. And uh, once, I, <laughs> once I get a working phone again, uh, hopefully tomorrow, I will be even more on Twitter again. Uh, so my my Twitter nickname is first name, last name, Moritz Blesnik. Probably hard for you to write, so you should you should um, check out the notes of the of the podcast. Yeah, um, we'll, and... we'll put that in the show notes so people can link to it. <laughs> exactly. It's exactly, an Austrian yeah. handle, so it's uh, I'm not even going to spell it right now. It's better to yeah. go to the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so builttosell.com slash blog, and you'll find uh, the show notes uh, for Mo and, and, uh, and his Twitter handle. Mo, thank you so much for doing this. This was great. Awesome. Thank you for having me. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.